so many self-published authors, they do release once or maybe even twice. And like, that's kind of the end of that. But for me, this is not something that I just do for fun. It's a viable career because in a, in a sense, I almost feel like I'm coming home. What's good? I'm Nikisha Elise-Williams, and this is Black and Published, bringing you the journeys of writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. Today's guest is Janae Hardin, author of the YA thriller, 42 Minutes. A licensed clinical social worker by trade, Janae says her calling is to infuse stories of mental health into her fiction. She's a morally gray character, you know, and, and I wanted to keep her like that because you don't know what to, to think of her. You know, you don't know if you should root for her. You don't know if you should, you know, not like her because technically she is killing people. The inspiration for tackling neurodivergence and mental health disorders, including autism and schizophrenia, stemmed from Janae's years of experience working with children, students and teens. Why she says she wants her legacy to be a storytelling therapist. Plus, the generational inheritances she says keep people in a chokehold that she hopes to highlight in her novels. That and more is next when Black and Published continues. Well, then let's jump in, Janae. When did you know that you were a writer? <laughs> so I think it's maybe cliche. I kind of always knew I was a writer. I knew eventually I would write a book. Um, when I was a kid and I started reading books, I always, of course, loved the storytelling aspect of it, but I love just the way words kind of mesh together and could invoke so much, you know, feeling and, and thought and intention. And I lived for those moments where like you read something and you had to put the book down because it's like, oh my goodness, what did I just read? So I remember even at a young age feeling like, you know, I can do that. Like I can make people feel like that. So always, I, I've kind of always knew that I would be a writer, but COVID actually gave me the opportunity and the time to sit down and do it. Okay, because I was going to say, like, you are like a, a mental health worker by trade. Yeah. Right, so, right. And I would think that during COVID, you would be busier. So how did you have more time to write the book? You know what? I literally made time. That's the crazy thing about it. Business was booming on the mental health side of things. But at the same time, I felt like these different storylines and everything just kind of started hitting me at the same time. And I started putting my full-time job at the time, which was I was a school social worker. I kind of started putting that a little bit on the back burner and putting more of just building my own mental health practice and um, making sure I was writing more, you know, kind of putting more steam into that. So just kind of, you know, navigating those transitions and just making time for it. So even as you went to school for mental health work, were you always like writing stories and things on the side, just like to keep and practice because that's what you enjoyed? 
I was the editor of my paper, my high school paper. So I did that for a while. When I was in college, I participated in like different like poetry meetups and poetry groups and stuff, but it was all just for fun. You know, at that point, it was just kind of something that I just enjoyed doing. So there wasn't really at that moment a thought like, oh my God, when am I going to write this book? But it was just still something that I enjoyed, just the words of it. So I'm like, you know what, how can I, you know, be a part of this community, but at the same time, it's still just be something that is just, you know, an interest. So what was it about the COVID global pandemic that made you prioritize what you loved and did for fun as something that you wanted to do professionally? So it brought me back to, again, being able to read more myself. Because that was still, you know, my pastime is being able, you know, to sit down with a good book. But, you know, the world life was life in, you know, and um, never really had the time to devote to like reading the way I wanted to. And then when COVID hit, I was just like devouring books, just reading them myself. And it brought back that that feeling of, you know what, I can do this. You know, I can make people feel like this, too. Or, you know what, I'm going to try. So it just kind of just gave me the time and the opportunity. And and that deciding to, to try, was that when you sat down and conceived the character Indigo and came up with her whole storyline and began to write this novel, 42 Minutes? All right, so my first novel was called Hey Brown Girl. And that one actually started out as a very small like picture book I had envisioned it to be. And it was a it was a safe story. It was very much like, you know, make sure you wear your mask and, you know, make sure you're safe during COVID time. And I really sat down and started writing that story. And then it just kind of morphed into an entire story about, you know, this girl experiencing her own mental health issues and me infusing so many things that I had seen from working with, you know, teens and and kids and everything. And the story just got bigger and bigger. And, you know, I had so many other stories too that were going at the same time. So then I started plotting 42 minutes and, you know, same with that. It started out as one story, but ended up, you know, being something totally different. (laughs) So you started out with an outline and then like scrapped it as you were writing because the story took on a life of its own. Yeah, for Hey Brown Girl, it started out truly as just like a middle grade, you know, picture book was the theme that I was kind of going for. And it turned into a full length novel. (laughs) (laughs) So 42 Minutes touches on mental health themes. And you said that your first book, Hey Brown Girl, touches on mental health themes. And that's obviously what you do. Why was it so important for you to write those kinds of storylines into the books that you were writing? So I believe my writing voice right now is strongest with young adults and telling young adult stories because that's been like the premise of my career. You know, if I think about my career on a whole, it's been working with um, teens, just experiencing mental health issues. So I feel like my voice is the strongest telling their stories. So when it came to me wanting to tell a story infusing mental health, I wanted to be able to talk about mental health and also, you know, have teens get excited about reading again. But also I'm still kind of infusing like different like, hey, this is what anxiety might look like for some people. This is what, you know, schizophrenia might look like for some people or this is what, you know, even um poverty, you know, because I think 42 minutes, really, it's a story of poverty. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, So even just kind of talking about those things, but being less hands on, you know, kind of roping kids in that way. 
Yeah, I found 42 Minutes to be very much a story about class distinctions Mm -hmm. as well as racial distinctions, but the class distinctions are most prevalent in addition to the heavy theme of mental illness and how mental illness manifests in the same family in different ways. Um, Before we get too heavily into the the book itself, um, once you decided that, you know, you were going to write these stories during COVID, what was your publishing process like, or what was the decision to decide? Okay. It's not just for me anymore. I'm going to, I want to release this to the world. Um, I was getting a lot of feedback from people. Like I, I knew very much from the beginning that I needed someone else to kind of help. So I was doing all the writing, but you know, I'm the type of person, like I'll get a coach for anything. Like I'm, I'm one of those. <laughs> So I immediately set out to look for like a self-publishing coach, um, like a writing coach. And then I got one and they just kind of encouraged me like, hey, like this is, you know, we don't need to play small with this. You know, we need to take this wide and we need to really make this writing career and this thing that you're doing a little bit bigger. So then that's when I mentioned, oh, well, I do have, you know, 42 minutes that I'm also, you know, kind of dabbling with a little bit. So it was really, I think, the encouragement you know, that kind of really kept me going in that writing process that told me like, this does not have to be a one-time thing. You know, so many self-published authors, they do release once or maybe even twice. And like, that's kind of the end of that. But, you know, for me, this is not something that, you know, I just do for fun. And it's not something that is just a stress reliever, even though writing is. But, you know, for me, it's a viable career because in in a sense, I almost feel like I'm coming home. Mm. No, I feel like I've always known I was going to do this anyway. So now this is me stepping into that, you know, and kind of creating my own lane with adding in the mental health piece that I already know so well anyway. So I feel very lucky and empowered to be able to combine two of the things that I love anyway, which is mental health and writing. All right. So then let's do the reading from 42 minutes and then I can ask you my questions about your novel. Okay. Okay. Black and published family. It's time for the reading. 42 minutes tells the story of Indigo Lewis, a high school senior on a mission to get into college. But as she works to earn enough money, an opportunity meant to help turns into an extortion scheme she can't outrun, much like the voices in her head. As graduation day approaches, Indigo must decide what to do and who she will listen to, no matter what. Here's Janae. So this is from actually the prologue in 42 Minutes, and this is Indigo speaking. She says, I powered my phone off and peeled my clothes from my body and let them fall to the floor. I stared at myself in my small mirror behind my bedroom door. What was I? A monster? Or maybe someone more like myself? His parents would be looking for him, that's for sure. There were no cameras outside of Dennis and Sons and none on on the street that I had ever seen. I wondered if my dad still had wood in the pit out back. Maybe I could burn my clothes. I didn't want to lay eyes on them ever again. The shower was as hot as I could stand it and the fog was thick as I pulled the curtain back and stepped in. I winced at the heat. My skin flushed and I felt my hair curl in the front of my braids. I grabbed two washcloths and one loofah sponge. Sydney used a long hand brush in the shower and I rummaged through the bathroom looking for that too, but I couldn't find it. 
I scrubbed my skin as hard as I could, even with my nails. My dad used Old Spice men's body wash, and today that's what I pulled for, squeezing it all over me. I lathered and fluffed, alternating between the loofahs and the rags. Next came my braids, and I squeezed the Old Spice over those two. I scratched at my scalp. Dad's soap smelled manly and powerful, not like the flowery smells that I was used to. That's how I wanted to feel, powerful, not this trembling mess before me. My face received the same intensity and my eyebrows, eyelids, and my cheeks. My hands moved in circles, rubbing everywhere on my face at the same time. There was no room to pace and no room to scream the way I wanted. I covered my hands over my mouth and a deep cry escaped. I was someone I didn't know anymore. I didn't understand anymore. I clasped my hands tighter around my mouth so dad couldn't hear. I screamed and screamed in the shower until my eyes burned and my throat was sore. Minutes later, I turned off the water and grabbed a towel and wrapped my body. Wiping the fog from the sink mirror, I studied my face. I looked the same. My skin didn't look different. My hair didn't look different. But my eyes, my eyes told the real story. Back in my bedroom, I grabbed a t-shirt from my dresser drawer and pulled it over my head. The t-shirt said the Fat Cats. Before my mom got sick, she was in a band and they were a 90s R&B cover group. They toured the South and people loved them. The t-shirt was the last real thing I had of hers. If I tried hard enough, I could even smell her on it too. My hair dripped down my shoulder and I grabbed a hair tie and put it in a bun on top of my head. I glanced down at my bag and noticed Jackson's notebook, the one with my name written on the front. I dug it out and palmed the cover. I paused. Let's see. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. So I noticed the book is structured into three sections. So you have puzzles, mindful, and then descent. And I think that aligns with the character's mental state through through the novel. Like in the in the beginning, it's just a puzzle. And then she becomes aware of certain things. And then it's just the for lack of a better word, descent into madness. Why did you want to use the extremes of mental health as the driving force for this young, dark-skinned Black girl in this story? Mm-hmm. Well, I was really inspired by the TV show Dexter. And it very much, to me, just made sense to kind of just go there. You know, and and I was thinking about it in context of that show, like what would that look like if that was a black girl? Mm. You know, just just what would that look like? And then I almost allowed myself to dream and to even think about it and to just kind of take that thought further. Like what really, truly, what would that look like? You know, and then, of course, I thought, like, well, what would make it interesting? And what if, you know, she didn't know that, you know, she had these, um, you know, this diagnosis and, you know, would she battle against it? Would she want to take it further? And, you know, what if I threw in this piece of, you know, her trying to be the good girl and her trying to, you know, live a good life and go to college? But there's all these obstacles, these really like social and like racial issues that are all just, you know, stopping her from getting what she wants. You know, like, what would that look like? Because Dexter, I didn't watch Dexter, but Dexter was a serial killer, right? Yes. Okay. Yep. 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 So in his mind, you know, he's like the martyr, 
you know, he's like, you know, taking, he's the Robin Hood, you know, he's taking out the bad guys. And in some ways, that's kind of how she sees herself too. Like, you know, I don't intend to kill these people, but they do bad things. And therefore I'm doing what I have to do. That makes me think that she kills somebody else in book two, because in book one, she's only killing one person. Um, so spoiler, I'm getting ahead of myself. Spoiler alert there. Um, yes, but, yes. but before we get to the kill, I just thought of something like she's schizophrenic, but she doesn't know, but or is not quite grasping it initially. But with that type of diagnosis and then running up and into the limitations of poverty and the microaggressions of racism in the school that she goes to, it seems like it all pushes her to a breaking point. So then to extrapolate that out into like an even bigger idea, is this like your commentary of, you know, these are extremes, but these are still things that really happen? Right. It's it's definitely extreme. And if we're thinking about it through the context of the entire series, you know, again, as you said, in the three parts, like I think she's still in her descent part. If we're thinking about, again, the whole series. So she's still kind of figuring out, like, what do I do with this schizophrenia? Like, what type of life am I going to live with this? And then as she moves through the series, it's going to be more about, you know, redemption and her, you know, not letting this control her and her taking control of it, you know, with the help of either medication or like counseling and just coming to terms with, you know, who she is. So if I'm thinking about it yeah, as a whole, you know, she, she still got some lessons to learn you know and unfortunately it's going to be at the expense of some other people who get in her way (laughs) more murder is on the way i am here for it no (laughs) um in putting this in a context of like a high school and so these are teenagers that are being teenagers acting wild and getting into trouble and focused on college and parties and grades and and all of these things. And then it's running up against, again, the class and the racism that pervades the book. But then also some of the things that I notice is about where they're in school and and the, the black children or the and even the poor students are deterred from taking honors classes, gifted classes, applying to college. They only have like, you know, oh, well, you should go to the armed services or you should do this or you should do that. But they're not encouraged to elevate themselves. Is that something that you took from your own experiences working in schools? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, Actually, I would say the majority of the things that um, that I Again, an extreme version, but the majority of the things that I put in the book, these really are things that I've seen in different schools that I've been in. Um, And I also worked for Child Protective Services for a long time, too. So I was even in, in and out of schools during that time as well. So a lot of these things I really did observe myself and, you know, even just having conversations with some of my students, you know, like I was the school social worker at the time, but they also still had a school guidance counselor who, again, was supposed to guide them into their career and show them different things. But it was always, oh, honey, you don't need to go to college. Like, let's just, you know, check out, you know, beauty school or cosmetology school or, you know, let's check out nursing. And, you know, like, even though there's nothing wrong with nursing or any of those things, but these are just like traditional careers that, you know, girls of color are kind of pushed towards a little bit, you know? So um, I wanted to again, just make that one of those things that are just something that compounds on all the things that she's already dealing with. In addition to her 
even trying to access her own mental health services. You know, her calling around saying like, something's going on with me. I need help. And then saying, oh, sorry, it's 125 a session. And, you know, she's 17. She's like, where am I getting that from? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's all of these different things that are just, you know, compounding that are really breaking her down mentally. But then you also touch on um, how grief can break somebody down mentally, Uh, the way autism may look and how it triggers people with the character of Ez, the grandfather. And like everybody has something. Why was it important for you to show that, you know, the people that we, you know, call eccentric in our families aren't necessarily eccentric because they want to be, but are eccentric because people don't understand that they need a specialized type of help. Mm -hmm. As is my favorite character. Um, And I think with this family in 42, they enabled as a little bit as well, because they just kind of knew, you know, this is just how he is. So nobody went to get him services or really see about, you know, hey, like, what, you know, what's wrong with him? What's going on? Or, you know, taking things a step further. They just kind of accepted it, you know, as who he was. And, you know, he's got a lot more issues, you know, as we'll see throughout the series that um, they really don't know how to manage because they've never had to before. You know, so again, it's still this um, theme of, you know, just poverty and and what to do in these situations that like Black people really aren't talking about all the time. As someone who's worked in social services and for CPS and all of those things, is it that mental health services are completely out of reach for families of color and families who are impoverished? Or is it that there are some services, but those families don't know about them? I think the social services field in general makes it very difficult to access services. Like it's really like a game of monopoly, you know, like you have to go here, call this person, call that person, email this one, email that one, and, you know, reach out and hopefully they'll go back to you. Hopefully they won't like, it's just issue after issue. And I almost think, you know, it's purposely done that way. Mm. You know, I even, I even think of college that way too. Like I was talking to somebody in one of my therapy sessions, we were talking about college and I said, you know, I really think it's almost purposely made to be that difficult, you know, to deter people from completing school, you know, cause there's just so many barriers and so many issues and we have to take all these extra classes when your major really only requires two years instead of four. So it's just all these different, you know, again, barriers. So I think for Ez and for their family too, it's like they know something's wrong and they're trying to access it. But at the same time, you know, when they get, you know, shut down or or twisted all around or whatever, they don't take it a step further. They're just kind of like, well, you know, it is what I it tried. is. Yeah. 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 So then as your series goes on, will we see Indigo fight against that? Because we see a little bit of that in um, this first book where she's, you know, running up against the system, getting knocked down and then trying to find a workaround in her own way that as she can, as she knows she needs help. She's she's trying even in the midst of murder. She's trying. Yeah. So was that something that you plan to keep as a theme throughout your series? 
It is. It is. That's a theme that's going to stay. Um, she she's a morally gray character, you know, and, <laughs> and I wanted to keep her like that because you don't know what to to think of her. You know, you don't know if you should root for her. You don't know if you should, you know, not like her because technically she is killing people. But at the same time, you know, you have all these reasons and all of the all of this backstory, you know, and, and that's also why I structured the book um, the way it is to where we go through the murder right in the first chapter. You know, we know exactly what happened. We know why it happened. You know, we have all the information right in the beginning. And then the rest of the book is us going backwards and kind of leading us up to the point where why she felt compelled to do this. So by the time you finish the book, you're again, you're kind of sitting back and you're like, oh, ish. Like, <laughs> you know, but what, really, like, I, I finished the book and like, I was still like, why did she call it 42 minutes? I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yep. And I had to do a lot of research to make sure that, you know, <laughs> to make sure it made sense and it was believable. And and I said, man, if they ever like Google my search history or something. Like, <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> But but yeah, she is. She's a very morally gray character. You don't know what to do with her, you know. And um, and again, that is a theme that's going to stay. But throughout the series, she will be redeeming herself as she learns more about herself. And that's why um, the second book in the series is called Someone More Like Myself, because she is becoming someone more who she is as she's, you know, going through college, figuring that out. So we've talked about that this is going to be a series and we've also talked about that, you know, some of these um, mental health illnesses are inherited. And so Indigo's mother, and you mentioned it a bit in the part of the reading, is absent and she's absent because her mother is also like her, is uh, schizophrenic and kind of a murderer. Um, will we see more of the mother's backstory going forward in the series? Yep. Yep. So we'll see more of her mom in the second and the third book. Yeah. We'll see more of all the characters actually, because in addition to the series being about poverty, it's also about those generational traumas and those generational mm. things that kind of keep us in a chokehold, you know? So Indigo's mom also has these mental health issues, but she feels so compelled to help her mom and to help Ez and to be there for everybody. And, you know, like our family has these issues, but I have to save them. It has to be me. I have to be the one, mm -hmm. you know? And so many Black teens feel like that anyway. Like, you know, I'm the first to go to college. It has to be me. You know, so they're not allowed to have mental health issues when they get there or, you know, not have the answers like they have to get it right when they get there, you know. So for Indigo going to college, it's just going to be fraught with issues because she goes with that feeling of, you know, it has to be me. I have to save my family. So then what is your message through this novel to those students, young adults, new adults in that space who feel like, you know, it has to be me. I have to do this for my family and I only get this one chance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my advice is make it a conversation. You know, I think if anything, this book is a conversation piece, you know, even with it being as crazy as it is, <laughs> and everything that's going on, you know, it is a 
testament again to having a conversation about mental health. You know, like, yes, it is an extreme case of what some of the things can look like, but, you know, all of the different things that kind of came together that made it, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back. Let's, let's talk about those straws, you know, because there was a lot of them. And these are things that happen every day. So as we see for her, you know, for her, life was life in the book, you know, like even there was one part in the book where she had to print out some some forms or like some papers to submit back to the college. And she had to go through all kinds of stuff to, to print out the pages and the mail them off. Sometimes that really is how it is. Like we take it for granted that everybody's got a printer and everybody's got somewhere to go and everybody just knows like where to fax stuff. But like sometimes, you know, they really don't, you know? And I remember when I was a school social worker, I had a student that I was seeing, brilliant, brilliant student. He was about like 13, black kid, and he was in like advanced biochemical, some class he was in. He was the only black student in the class, and he always received straight A's with everything. And this was during COVID time, too. So we were in a meeting online, and um, he was pulling like a, like a low B in the class. And I asked him about it, you know, well, why are you pulling a low B? And he got very upset. And he said, the teacher doesn't do the things, you know, online, like it's not like a Google classroom. He requires us to print out the form, like the math pages, print them out. Then I have to, you know, do it all by hand because he wants to see the work. And then I have to like either take a picture of it and scan it back to him or like fax it back to him. And he says, you know, I don't have anywhere to print it and I don't know how to take a picture and send it back. Like nobody in my house knows how to do that. So this brilliant kid brilliant brain black kid who again pulled straight A's and everything was now getting this low B you know in this advanced class all because he could not print out the papers so I'm like stuff like this happens Mm. no stuff like this is real thank you and highlighting these issues what do you want affluent adults who come to this text to take from it be more aware you know be way more aware of you know, again, the things that we take for granted and we think of, you know, kids today as being so technologically advanced, which they are, you know, but at the same time, we still need to be having those real conversations. You know, how are you? You know, how do I want to make sure I, you know, say your name correctly? You know, so so let's have that conversation and just making sure that if we're talking about mental health, it's in a way that they understand, you know, because they don't understand. Oh, sorry, you don't have insurance. It's 125 a session. You know, they don't understand that. But what they do understand is I am in crisis right now Mm -hmm. and I need someone to talk to right now. So what does that look like for me again right now? You know, yes. All right, so I want to switch to a speed round in my game before I let you go for the afternoon. What is your favorite book? Between Lovers, Eric Jerome Dickey. (laughs) Who was your favorite author? Eric Jerome Dickey. He was my favorite as well. Yes. Uh, May he rest in peace. Yes, sir. What do you think is the best book to movie adaptation? Recently, I like Where the Crawl Dad Sing. That was pretty good. And then if your book were to get the movie treatment, who would you want to play your characters? I've always in my mind saw Kiki Palmer as Indigo. I think she would do that role really well. Um, And then as 
I could see him as like Ving Rhames, like a crazy version of, of him, like, you know, mm-hmm. big and loud and, and yeah. And that's about it. I haven't gotten as far as anyone else in the story, but those two. Yeah. Okay. Um, what do you do to recalibrate your mental health when you feel like you're not at like your highest self? I really, I, I ask myself a lot of questions. You know, I guess I therapize myself. <laughs> and I, I, <laughs> I want to know, you know, what is it that you're feeling right now? Like, how do you feel right now? How do you want to feel? And what's going on in between there that's stopping you from feeling how you want to feel? So is it is it you? Do you physically not feel well? Do I have a headache? Does my stomach hurt? You know, is it something physical? Is it more of an emotional thing? You know, is it something someone said to me that made me feel that way? Like just kind of getting to the root of it and then start in there, you know, because a lot of times, honestly, it could be like, girl, go take a nap. Like. <laughs> It really good. Just go, go take a nap. And I wake up and I feel fine, you know, and other times it might be something more, but just asking myself those questions and getting into the habit of teaching myself to know what it is that I need. Okay. And then what brings you joy? My daughter brings me joy. My books, they, they bring me joy a lot. If I see my daughter holding my books. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and then what brings you peace? I'm a big spa lover. I love going to the spa. Like I'm I'm very bougie about this too. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool. It's cool. Yes. Um name one book you wish you would have written. Mm. And this is the game rewriting the classics part of it now. Oh, you know which one I really like? Monday's not coming. From Tiffany D. Jackson, yeah. Name one book where you want to change the ending and how would you do it? I recently just finished uh, This Bitter Earth from Bernice McFadden. Mm-hmm. And um, and that one, it was a really, really good story. Like, I love the ending. I just wanted a little bit more, just some questions answered. So just because I just finished that book, I'm going to have to say that one. I just wanted the ending to be just a little bit more. But otherwise... <laughs> <laughs> and then name a book that you think is overrated and why? Mm, the second part to the coldest winter ever uh life after death yes 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 that one i still haven't read it yep that one i I started it actually i started a couple times and i keep putting it down so i should just i should just let it go but (laughs) it just does nothing for me (laughs) and then of course like I'm, i'm seeing everybody else's thoughts too but i'm like let me give it my own you know let me see but i can't make it past like every chapter so i'm just like yeah. Okay. And so then my final question for you today, when you are dead and gone and no longer here, what would you like someone to write about the legacy of words and work that you left behind? Mm, that's a good one. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I want people to know I tried my best. You know, that I set out to do everything I said I was going to do you know, creatively. And I want to be known as what I call myself the storytelling therapist. And that (laughs) is what I want to be known as because I, again, think it's so beautiful to be able to combine two of the things that I love with 
mental health and with writing. So I just want people to know that I did my best to combine the two and, you know, talk about it in a creative way that just opens the door for those conversations. So I I tried my best. Thank you, Janae. Big thank you to Janae Harden for being here today on Black and Published. Make sure you check out Janae's latest novel, 42 Minutes. And if you're not following Janae, check her out on the socials. She's at author Janae on Instagram. And Janae is spelled J-A-N-A-Y. That's our show for the week. If you like this episode and want more Black and Published, head to our Instagram page. It's at Black and Published, and that's B-L-K and Published. There, I've posted a bonus clip from my interview with Janae about her plans to take her books into schools and have them taught as part of the curriculum. Make sure you check it out and let me know what you think in the comments. I'll holla at y'all next week when our guest will be Tia Williams, author of the romance novel Seven Days in June. I remember seeing the kids at school that just like leaned into that, that whole thing, like, fuck everything, like, and I would, I remember looking at them and just being jealous, like, oh my God, they just feel like they can, that must be such freedom just to be like, fuck it, I just don't care. But I felt the pull of that so strongly that my life would be over. Like if I did that, my life would be over. I would never come out of that. And so I just ran another direction always. That's next week on Black and Published. I'll talk to you then. Peace. Peace.